I leave here tonight, go back to my home, which is just north of Toronto. And then on Friday, I go to Germany. I'm going to be speaking this next week uh, at a Bible school in Germany. Uh, Fifteen lectures they've given me on the book of Romans, one of the rich books of the New Testament. And uh, so value prayer for that, if you think of me. <laughs> and uh, then we'll be back home at the end of next week again. But let's turn to Matthew chapter 5. And we have been looking at the introduction, really, to the Sermon on the Mount, which are the eight beatitudes, as we call them, eight qualities of life that Jesus talks about here that make for what the word blessed means. The Greek word is makarios. It means to be happy. Not in a superficial sense, but in a deep inner sense, irrespective of our circumstances. And uh, we've gone through the first six of them. They're not talking about different people. They're talking about qualities to be found in each one of us. And there's a progression Beginning in verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who recognize their own inability to be what they were created to be. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There is where the king can come and make his residence because the kingdom, of course, is the sphere of the king. The kingdom of God is within us. And when we face that poverty of spirit, the second one, verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn. We mourn that poverty. We recognize I do what I do because I am what I am. What I am is my problem. I mourn it. It's what we call repentance. And they will be comforted by the comforter, which is one of the names of the Holy Spirit, who then replaces what we are with what the Lord Jesus Christ is. Our poverty with his riches. Our weakness with his strength. Our sin with his righteousness. And that's why it's called the comforter, because this is very comforting. And then in verse 5, blessed are the meek. To be meek is to be submissive, to be humble. We meekly submit ourselves to the Lord Jesus, and they'll inherit the earth. They'll discover he has an agenda, a purpose, a plan for them here on earth. How do you know when someone's living in that kind of relationship? Well, there are three giveaway evidences. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The new appetites are the evidence of life for righteousness. We talked about that the other night. And then, blessed are the merciful, for they'll be shown mercy. To be merciful is to be compassionate, to be loving, to be kind. And it's those who give who receive. We looked at that a bit last night. And then, an aspect of that, blessed are the pure in heart. That word pure does not mean perfect, but single-minded is the way we looked at it. This one thing I do. I press on to know him and those who are single-minded, pure in heart. They will see God. That is, they'll see God in creation and circumstance in all kinds of ways because their eyes will be attuned to him and their hearts in touch with him. That's what we've looked at so far. Now the last two, let me read them to you. Verse 9 and then verse 10, then 11 and 12 because the last one is repeated. Again, let me read it to you. Blessed are the peacemakers, verse 9. And this is now, by the way, about the impact this person has on the world. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called sons of God. 
Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and force say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. First one then we'll look at tonight, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called the sons of God. We live in a world right now in which we're very conscious of conflict and warfare. As I speak to you this evening, Israel and Gaza are ablaze, really, on fire with trauma and conflict. Russia has invaded Ukraine and pushed off the headlines. But the torment of that continues. And we forget ongoing conflicts in the Yemen, for instance. The Rohingya people in Myanmar who have been pushed out and enduring enormous conflict. The events in Mali, Niger, and South Sudan. Amhara in uh, Ethiopia. So what does Jesus mean when he says, blessed are the peacemakers? It's something far deeper than just sitting around in the United Nations building in New York negotiating peace. We're grateful for those who do that. But that is not what this is about. Those are symptoms. What is the cause of this conflict? I remember being in a school on one occasion, and uh, I was asked to speak to a class about 30 or so kids. And I said to them, do you like the world that you're growing up in? When you listen to the news, if you do, or you see what's going on, you see the relationships going on in your families, maybe, in the school playground, in the world around you, do you like the kind of world that you are growing up in? Do you think the folks who came before you have done a good job? And I asked people to respond, and both, mostly what they said was, no, they didn't like the world they're growing up in. I said, uh, what do you think is the problem? I saw right on the board things you tell me. If the world is in a mess, what's the cause of the mess? What's the problem? <coughs> Somebody said, teachers. So I said, okay. Let's discount that one. <laughs> what is it that makes this world uncomfortable for you? And somebody said, people are greedy. Is that what you mean? Well, they want what other people have got. And they sometimes hurt people in the process of getting it. I said, that's a good one. I wrote down the word greedy. 
Somebody said people are proud. What do you mean? Well, some people think they're better than other people and they look down on them, etc. That's a good one. I put down the word proud. I can't remember the order in which they came. Somebody said people are selfish. What do you mean? Well, let's just think about me, 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 me. I put that down. Some people are jealous. What do you mean? Well, they don't like what other people have and so they try to spoil it for them. And so I said, that's a good one. I wrote down the word jealous. I've forgotten how many words they gave me, probably 10 or so. And I said, okay, so what's wrong with the world, <clears throat> you're telling me, is that people are greedy and they're proud and they're selfish and they're jealous. You think that's wrong with the world? And they said, yes. I said, supposing tonight you didn't go home, but this class stayed behind at school and you said to each other, Listen, our world's in a mess, and we're in, and we're, we're, the world's in a mess. People, people are selfish, people are proud, people are jealous, people are greedy. Let's see if we can work out how we can put this world right. I said, supposing you stayed here all night. Do you, do you think by the morning you might discover that somebody is a bit proud in this class? That there's somebody here who's a bit greedy? somebody who's a bit selfish. And somebody said yes and gave me a name. I said, don't give me a name. <laughs> I said, you were telling me just now this is what's wrong with the world. Now you're telling me it's also wrong with your class. So supposing you didn't stay here tonight, you went home and you got your family together and you said to your parents and your siblings and your grandparents, parents, hey listen, our world's in a mess and my class at school's in the same mess. Uh, people are greedy, people are proud, people are selfish, people are jealous. Let's see if we can work out how to put the world right. And supposing you stayed up all night at home and you tried to put the world right, you think you'd find somebody in your home who's a bit greedy and a bit selfish and a bit jealous? Do you think you'd find that? One of the boys said, my sister. I said, leave your sister out of this. That one said, my granny. I, no, no, leave your granny out of this too. Do you think you'd have it in your family? They said, yes. So suppose you didn't go home tonight. You went and climbed a tree and sat the tree all night. And you said to yourself, hey, the world's in a mess. People are selfish, greedy, proud, selfish. How can I work out how I can put the world right? Do you think by the morning you might realize you're a little bit proud yourself? You're a little bit greedy sometimes, a little bit selfish. You get a bit jealous sometimes. Do you think you find that true? And there was silence. So I pointed to one boy who'd been vocal before. I said, what about you? He said, me? I said, yes, you. And everybody else said, yeah, him. <laughs> I said, no, no. What about you? Pointed to somebody else. He said, I, I, I don't know. I said, you don't know? You ever been a little bit proud? What about you? You. And they all agreed, yes. I'm like that myself. I said, now listen. You just said, what's wrong? You told me what's wrong with the world. Now you say it's what's wrong with your school and it's what's wrong with your family. Now you're saying you have the same issues as well. So what's wrong with the world? I'll tell you what's wrong with the world. You are. I am. So how do you put the world right? You say, what's wrong with me? And you start to work out, how do I put myself right? And... James says that in the book of James, chapter 4 and verse 1. 
he asks a very good question. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Good question. Then he answers his own question. Don't they come from your desires, the battle within you? James says, what's wrong with the world? You are, he says. And of course, what we see going on in the world around us is a multiplication of what is going on within me because it's the human heart that's broken and fallen and damaged and corrupt, which is why Jesus rarely talked about symptoms, especially in the similar amount. He rarely talked about symptoms. He talked about causes. And the cause always went back to the internal condition of our hearts. So when he says later in this same chapter, you've heard it said, don't commit murder, do not murder. But if you're angry with your brother, you're already guilty. Your problem isn't killing your neighbor, it's what's going on inside you. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But if you lust that woman, you're already guilty. It's not the act that is itself the issue. It's what goes on inside you that is the issue. So what is a peacemaker? Someone who introduces people to that source of peace. Because the marvelous thing about the gospel is, it's all about coming to peace with God, which is where our initial problem lies. We are separated from him. Coming to peace with God so that we might experience the peace of God. In our hearts, because the New Testament talks about those two kinds of peace. Peace with God, reconciled to God, so he's no longer, we're no longer in conflict with him, but he's our friend. Romans 5 verse 1, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the starting point of the Christian life, coming to peace with God in order that then... We might experience the peace of God in the midst of the conflict in which we live. Because Philippians 4 says, don't be anxious about anything. That's a fine thing to say when you're not in trouble. But when you're in trouble, what do you do? He says, don't be anxious, but in everything, the things that do make you anxious, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace of God, which passes understanding, will guard your hearts. And guard your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, it is this, you see, which is the issue. Because as Jesus said in John 16, verse 33, let me read it to you. He said to his disciples, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. But in the world you will have trouble. So he says, if you're looking for peace in the world, you're not going to get there. You might solve this problem, another one will erupt. You solve that one, another one props up. You try to deal with that, and something comes up behind you. That's why in the world, we're never going to be at peace in the world. And Jesus said that. So he says, so what I'm teaching, what I'm bringing to you, is that in me, you may have peace. That is, in your relationship with me, a peace in your heart, because in this world... You will have trouble. You're going to have trouble and go on having trouble. So the peacemaker is the person who's faced their own poverty of spirit, mourned it, 
submitted to Christ meekly as their Lord, has an appetite for righteousness, is more concerned to give and be merciful than to get, and is single-minded, pure in heart. And this person is then in a position to bring the peace formula, if you like, to other people. That's why he doesn't say, he says, blessed are the peacemakers, not blessed are the peaceful. One thing to be peaceful, but a peacemaker is to share the peace formula, if you like, to enable people to come into a relationship with God. And the Christian life always leads to this, that what God does in us is in order that he might do work through us in blessing other people. I quoted that verse last night. We read it last night in John 7, 37. If you're thirsty, come to me and drink. And out of your heart, said Jesus, will flow a river of living water. And then John adds an editorial comment after Jesus finished saying that. He wrote, John wrote, by this he meant the Spirit whom those who believed were later to receive. Up until this time, the Spirit had not yet been given. So he says, if you're thirsty, don't say thirsty, come to me and drink. But if you come to me and drink, what's going to happen is that there's going to be a flow out of your heart. You who have the experiences of peace are going to be a peacemaker in that you bring the message to other people. Now, that intimidates many of us. Remember when I first became a Christian and I heard, you're supposed to witness. How, how am I going to do that? How am I going to talk to other people? I was by nature, I'm an introvert, but I was by nature shy and reserved. The first time I ever did try to witness, I was, I know, I've been about 15 or something. And uh, I was really troubled that I wasn't doing this and I didn't have the courage to do it. So I decided I'd try and witness to somebody who I didn't know, but I thought I'm going to be embarrassed if I meet somebody I don't know and I start to talk to them. So I decided I would telephone somebody I didn't know. So I thought, <laughs> I don't know anybody I don't know, so who can I telephone? I decided to telephone the operator. I went to the public telephone in our village in those days. You don't have public phones now because we all carry them in our pockets. I went to the public telephone in our village and I dialed the number of the operator. And I remember the conversation. It wasn't a long one. She came on the line and said, number, please. In those days, you have to give... The, uh, uh, usually, if you're making a long-distance call, you called the operator and they made the connection for you. Remember those days? Yeah, some old people do, yeah. <laughs> she said, number, and I said, I don't want a number. She said, what do you want? <laughs> I said, do you mind if I ask you a question? question? And she said, make it quick. <laughs> I said, are you ready to meet God? <laughs> and she said, yes, anytime. Bang, down went the phone. <laughs> I remember the conversation word for word. And I got onto my bicycle and I cycled back to my home and I felt deflated, but I'd at least cracked the ice a bit. 
What really helped me was discovering that I wasn't being told to go out and try to witness by myself. Here's a verse. I remember somebody talking about this in a meeting I was at when I was a couple of years after that. Verse in Matthew 9, verse 37. The harvest is plentiful, the labors are few. That's the situation Jesus described. There is lots of harvest. There's just not enough people to do it. So what do you do? Does he then say, run out and do as much as you can? No, he said, ask the Lord of the harvest to send workers into the harvest field. Here's the picture. There's a big harvest there, but there are not many people doing the harvesting. So, don't run into the harvest as best you can, but ask the Lord of the harvest because he knows where the harvest is and you don't. He knows the hearts that are ripe and you don't. He knows what's going on in people's minds and you don't. Ask him to put you in the right place with the right people at the right time and trust him to do so. You see, 2 Corinthians talks about our being, 2 chapter 6 verse 1 says, we are workers together with God. We're not workers for God. He's back there saying, go on, go on, do whatever he's telling you. Go on. And you say, all right, I'll do it, I'll try. No, you work as with him. You work in our union with Christ. We work as with him. And he leads us, directs us, brings us to the right place at the right time for the right purpose. And we don't know what is already going on in people's hearts because there's a lot more going on in people's hearts than most of us think. A lot more. I've discovered that in the years of my own ministry. I'll give you some examples in a moment, but you remember when Jesus met the woman of Samaria, that he was traveling with his disciples from Judea up to Galilee. And Samaria is about halfway, but Samaria was hostile territory. Samaritans and Jews didn't get on. And Jesus was tired, and so he sat down by the well, sent his disciples to buy some food, and a woman came to draw water. I mentioned to her the other day, and uh, he engaged her in conversation. And uh, when the disciples came back, they were surprised to see Jesus talking to a woman. And surprised that she was, it was a Samaritan woman because they didn't have dealings with them. And Jesus rebuked them and said to them this in John 4, verse 35. He said, do not say four months more and then the harvest. They tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. In other words, he said, I sent you into... Samaria to buy some food, which is why they'd gone. And I stayed back here and I gave you the opportunity to meet this woman on the road who was ripe, but you missed her. They probably saw her, of course. They probably said good morning to her. When she was at her earshot, they probably said to each other, I wonder why she's going in the middle of the day on her own. And they probably concluded she's been ostracized. And they probably said, I wonder why she's been ostracized by other women. And so, one of them, I said, you know, maybe she's been running after some of their men or something. And all of this would have been true, actually. But he said, open your eyes and look. You never saw her. This woman, who you did not think was somebody worth engaging, was ripe. The harvest is ripe. And then he said in verse 38, I sent you to reap what you've not worked for. Others have done the hard work, 
and you are to reap the benefit of their labors. That's an interesting statement. Who had done the hard work in this woman's life? Was it other disciples who had witnessed to her before? No, she was a Samaritan. They'd probably never met a disciple before. Well, who has been doing the hard work? We have no idea. But he says something's gone on in that woman's life. Maybe it, be, it, was, it was her situation. Maybe it was her husband's and her disillusionment with marriage. She'd been married five times, living with a man she's not married to. Maybe all of this had prepared the ground. And you missed her, he said to them. You see, it's often the people we least expect who, who, who God is working in their hearts. When, when I came to Toronto to be pastor of the People's Church, we, we, we talked quite a bit about how we're going to reach the city, the big city. And we had meetings to discuss strategies and tactics and events and courses we'd run. And we thought of all the ways we could open the doors wide for people that we could meet with them and point them to Christ. And we had lots of programs going. We had a team in Evangelism Explosion. Some of you knew that, that, that sort of organization. We did the Alpha course. We did, uh, we did other courses that were similar. But what intrigued me after a couple of years was that some of the people that came to Christ and became leaders in the church and are leaders in the church today didn't come to the doors that we opened. They came to the windows when we weren't looking. They came in totally unexpected ways. And I discovered again and again, God had been at work in people's lives in ways we would never have known. I remember one day when I finished speaking, I was at the front chatting to people and uh, there was a little line of people and, and I saw a couple I'd never seen before. That wasn't unusual in a church, you know, a big church in Toronto. There's always people visiting. And when, I, when they got to them, I went to shake their hand. And the man didn't shake my hand. He pointed at me like this and said, Who told you I was coming here today? I said, uh, I'm sorry, I don't think I know you. He said, Somebody told you. I was coming here today. I said, why did you say that? He said, because you just described me exactly this morning. I said, oh, I know who that was. That was the Holy Spirit. But, but he doesn't say who it's for. God's been speaking to you. It turned out he was a Mormon bishop. And uh, he and his family were going to their Mormon church that morning. He wasn't speaking that day. A little bit later, it was the first snow of the winter in November. And they got slowed down with the snow. And then they got onto the street at people, where People's Church is before we had three services, eventually, but, but before one of the services. And um, the traffic was slowed down. Uh, and uh, the Toronto police sent us two policemen every week to, to direct traffic because there's a lot of people coming in. And we got bogged down in this traffic, and I got frustrated. And my son in the back seat said, let's go to this church instead, Dad. And I said, don't be so silly. And then he said, as we got up right by the People's Church, the car in front went into the parking lot. 
And I folded in, and my wife said to me, what are you doing? And I said, I don't know. Let's just go here and do something different today. He parked the car, came and sat on the balcony. And he said, you describe me to a T. I said, well, I know nothing about you, but the Holy Spirit knows everything about you. And we talked, and he and his wife came to Christ that morning. His son and daughter came to the Lord. They were about uh, 10 and 12 in the youth ministry a few weeks later. He went back to his church the next week. He said, I want to tell you what happened last week. I ended up going into the people's church, and he said, and I heard the voice of God speak to me. He told them what happened to me. He said, I want to encourage you and invite you to come with me tonight to the people's church at 6.30 for the evening service. I want you to come and hear what I heard last week. And he brought a whole row of people. And it caused such havoc in the Mormon church in Toronto that in a few months, they sacked him, they fired him, they closed down that church because it had become contaminated. Several of them had come to Christ. And they sold the building. And there's a block of apartments there now. I got to know him quite well because we baptized his whole family a few weeks later. You know, Mormons get baptized for all their ancestors. And I said, how many times have you been baptized now? He said, this is the first time I'm baptized in Christ. And he was the means of a number of other Mormons coming to we, we didn't have a plan for reaching Mormon bishops. We never thought about it. Never crossed their minds. But God was doing something. The details are not mine to share with you. But things have gone on in their lives. But God knew. Others have done the hard work. I seem to reap the harvest, Jesus said to the disciples. If I'd met a Mormon bishop somewhere, I'd probably think, oh, he'll be tough. I won't talk to him. <laughs> they won't listen. Had a phone call one day from a young man who was an Iranian student at the University of Toronto. He said, can I come and see you? I'd have talked to you. I said, sure. Why do you want to talk to me? He said, I came to the People's Church last Sunday for the first time. I've never been to church in my life before. But I came on Sunday. I'd like to come and talk. I said, I'd love to talk to you. He came on the Thursday afternoon, 21 years of age. He said to me, I know there's got to be a meaning to life. I don't know what it is. I don't know where it is. It's not in Islam. I know that because I've looked. It's not in transcendental meditation. I've tried that. It's not a new age theories. I've been into a lot of those. It's not in self-help stuff. That's like picking, picking yourself up with a, your shoelaces. And I decided last week I'd see if Christian had anything to say. So I decided to come to this church. He said, I only know this church because I once tried to play football with some friends of mine, soccer, that is, with friends of mine in the parking lot, and somebody kicked us out. <laughs> so I came. He said, the end of the service... I hadn't understood a single word of what I'd heard. Not a single word. Somebody said to me, put a sentence together what you heard. I couldn't do it. 
Although I didn't understand the word, I knew it was true. And I recognized right away, that's the Holy Spirit. He bears witness to the truth, even when you don't understand it. He said, what is it that is true? I had a Bible study group for young men on a Monday night, once a month it was. We meet at 6, had some pizza, stayed till about 11. We would just sit and we'd talk. We were going through Matthew's Gospel. That was the idea, but we talked about everything good for young people. Some were new Christians, some weren't yet Christians. He joined that group, and within two or three months, he came to Christ. He then went back to his university digs. He put a notice up on the notice board, something like this. He said, uh, if anybody's interested in studying the Bible, please come to room such and such on the Thursday night. I'd like to have a Bible study. I don't know anything about it, but if you'd like to find out, I want to find out, let's have a Bible study together. And he put this notice up. And a Korean student turned up and had a Bible study together. And this young man, his life was completely turned around. He had an appetite for God, for the work of God. And I've rarely seen a young man become such a disciple of the Lord Jesus as quickly as this young man. And uh, one of the best things about that story is that he's now my son-in-law because I made a mistake of bringing him home one day. <laughs> and he met my daughter. And they're missionaries together now in South Africa. And uh, he had such an appetite for the work of God. And you know something? When I got to know him, I got to know his story. This verse, others have done the hard work. And you're to enter labor. I discovered there'd been some work done in his heart that we had no idea, and he had no idea, was the work of God. And it began in Tehran when he was a teenager. Had been at a party with some other boys, and they were on their way home in a taxi. They called a taxi to take them home. And in the back of the taxi, these boys were talking about the party and about the girls, and it wasn't the best conversation. And they got to the first house for the first boy to get out, and the taxi driver stopped the taxi turned around and said, don't you boys ever think about God? It's a Muslim taxi driver. A little bit frustrated with that conversation. Don't you ever think about God? First boy got out, went to the next house. The taxi driver didn't say anything else. And Arzan went to bed that night and he couldn't sleep. All he could think about was, don't you ever think about God? No, I never think about God. I don't know anything about God. But a seed was planted. And a little while later, he got into some kind of difficulty. And in his room one night, he said, God, if there is a God, if there is a God anywhere, show me yourself. And he said, into that room came a presence that he'd never known before. In the morning, it was not there. And he began to look for this presence. And he went looked in Islam, looked in these other things. And he said, when I came into the people's church that Sunday morning, the presence that I had in my room that night was here. That's why I knew it was true. And he's a godly young man. I mentioned the other day, working amongst people addicted to substances and so on and getting in the dirt with them to try and rescue them. Something's already going on in the heart. You don't know that. 
You don't know that. When we say, Lord, I want to be available to you, just want to be available. You don't know where God's going to put you. I remember going to a restaurant in Toronto with somebody one day to have lunch, and there was a rather pretty young lady who was serving us and got in conversation with her. And she said she was uh, in Toronto working for a modeling agent. She said, but, you know, you've got to wait for opportunities. So I'm, I, I, I'm a waitress in my spare time, and then I get a asked to do something once in a while. Did you live here on your own? Yes, she said, I do. A bit lonely? Yes, it is sometimes. You know, down the road, we have a church here, people's church, etc. Love you to come sometime. You'll meet some folks, make some friends, maybe. And sure enough, she came. She turned up. We announced there was an alpha course starting. She said, I'll, I'll go to that. Meanwhile, down in the town, in the city, there was a young guy who worked as a disc jockey in a nightclub, totally disillusioned with himself and with his life. And somebody said to him, or invited him, to go to the Alpha Course at the People's Church. And he thought, well, I'm looking for something. So he, he came and he said, I'll, I'll, I'll go. And he parked his car where he could see the door leading into where the Alpha Course was being held. And, and he said to himself, I, 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 I don't want to go in at the moment. I'll see what kind of people go in there. And this young lady came along. <laughs> so, ooh, nice. <laughs> so he came in. Got to know her. They both came to Christ. They're married now. They have three children. He's one of the elders in the People's Church now. She's very involved. I met her in the restaurant a few weeks after that first time. I said, it's great to see you one or two Sundays. You're going to come next Sunday. It's our Christmas service. She says, I, I, I can't because my family are coming to visit. Well, bring them with you. No, no, they wouldn't do that. But that next Sunday, second service, I went in, and there was a row of people. She was at the end, her parents and two brothers. I said, oh, nice to see you. She said, yes, we all came. And that morning, her brother was converted. And then he joined YWAM and got involved in mission. In all these lives, behind the scenes, there was a story. There were things going on. It doesn't just happen in a vacuum. There's something going on. Seed has been sown questions or experiences or pain or difficulty has taken place and there are people searching for peace waiting for peacemakers i know the formula i know the secret the secret is christ you say well those stories are all very well but that's because you're a pastor <laughs> and of course those of us who are in ministry have special opportunities that's true but in our ordinary life as well, I came home, I'll give you one more story. I came home one day, and my wife said to me, do you know that couple who lived at the end of our street? We didn't know them, but I'd seen them around. Apparently, the wife had a heart attack last night and died. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. And I felt in my heart I should go and visit him and just say I'm sorry. But I didn't. I was busy, left it, forgot about it. 
Some months later, I took one of my kids out for breakfast and went into the restaurant. We were sitting at the table to have breakfast. At the next table was a man sitting on his own. And I looked across and thought, that's the man who lives in that street. That's the man who lost his wife. So after a while, I said to him, excuse me, do you live on such a street? He said, yes. I said, I've seen you there. He said, yes, I think I've seen you as well. I said, didn't you lose your wife recently? He said, yes, I did. I said, I'm so sorry. How, how, how are you coping? He said, I'm not coping very well. He said, I've come here for good breakfast on a Saturday morning because I'm not very good at cooking. And we talked across the table a little bit. I was with my, my daughter, so that was the main focus. But just before I left, I said, do you come here every Saturday morning? He said, uh, yes, I've started to. I said, would you mind if I join you once in a while? I'm home some Saturdays. He said, I'd love you to. So I met him there the next Saturday. He knew nothing about me. I knew nothing about him. We began to talk. He told me he was interested in Nostradamus. You know Nostradamus, that prophet in the 14th century and uh, all the things he's supposed to have predicted. And he told me about Nostradamus. I said, well, that's interesting. I'm interested in the prophet too. And he said, oh, really? I said, yes, my prophet's better than your prophet though. <laughs> he said, who's your prophet? I said, Jesus Christ. He said, uh-oh, you're one of those, are you? <laughs> I said, uh, I don't know what you mean by that, but uh, yes, I know. So we agreed. He gave me a book on Nostradamus, and I gave him a book called Basic Christianity by John Stott. We'd read a chapter each, and the next week we met, we would discuss it. And after over a year, he came to know Christ. Can't tell details. It wasn't an easy journey. I came home one day about, I know, a year after that. Six, nine months after that. And Hillary said to me, I just heard, Bruce was his name, that Bruce had a heart attack, just like his wife, and died. Oh, no. I didn't know who to contact. I knew he had family, but I didn't know them. And then about two nights later, a knock on my door, opened the door, young man there said, uh, I think you knew Bruce. I said, yes, I'm so sorry to hear it. He just died. He said, yes, I'm his son. So we're having a funeral for him. It's a secular funeral. There's going to be no hymns, no prayers, nothing like that, because uh, that's our family. And uh, he said, we're asking people who knew him to come and share some stories about him. So the, he said, uh, he used to enjoy having his breakfast with you. And I said, well, I loved it as well. He said, would you come and talk about your breakfast with me? I said, I'd love to. I said, can I, can I make a request? He said, sure. I said, could I speak last? He said, yeah, you can speak last if you like. So I went to the funeral. We, we sat around a big group, coffin in the front. People told stories about him. And then his son got up and said, you know, in the last couple of years, my father had a new friend. They used to meet for breakfast. His name's Charles. He's going to just talk about his breakfast with my dad. So I got up. I told him a few funny things I knew about him. And then I told him about our conversations. I told him that he'd come to the point of giving his life to Christ. I said, I don't know if that means anything to you, but I tell you, his body lies in this coffin, but his soul doesn't. The real Bruce isn't here. He is forever in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he had that assurance. And I sat down because totally secular thing. And his son got up and said, well, that was a bit different, wasn't it? <laughs> and then we had some refreshments, and about three people came to me and said, would you have breakfast with me one day? 
the interesting thing was, I had no idea. I discovered in the course of conversation, when he was a boy, he went to a Sunday school, a little brethren assembly in, in Toronto. And he could tell me some of the stories. He told me things he'd learned as a kid. They'd all been latent, tucked away in the background. And now they began to bubble up again. You see, we become peacemakers, sharing the peace message, the truth that brings people to peace with God. And blessed are the peacemakers, they'll be called the sons of God. Why are they called sons of God? Because they share the ministry of the Son of God. I think that's the meaning there. They become messengers of God to people. But what happens when you become a peacemaker? Let me just be very brief now. We're running out of time. When you become a peacemaker, there's some who respond and come to peace, and there's some who react and they persecute. And here's the last one, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Then he makes it personal. Blessed are you when people insult you persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecute the prophets who were before you. He says, when they persecute you, rejoice and be glad. Not react and get mad. <laughs> rejoice and be glad. Why? Because he says you're in very good company. They persecute the prophets who were before you. And also because great is your reward in heaven. Because what happens in this life is only temporary, only partial. There's a bigger and a better day coming. When he talks about this, he says when people insult you, that sounds like to your face. When people persecute you, that sounds like physical violence when they falsely say all kinds of evil against you, that is behind your back. And you know, persecution has characterized the work of God throughout history, hasn't it? If you study the book of Acts, the 28 chapters in the book of Acts, in 22 of the 28 chapters, there's persecution. And of the six where there isn't any, three of them are chapter 1, 2, and 3, when things were just getting started. After that, it became almost normality. And Jesus said, I quote this verse to you just now in John 16, 33. I told you these, these things, that in me you may have peace, but in the world you will have trouble. That's the promise. You can have peace in me, but don't think it's going to get comfortable in the world. 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, Paul says, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not might be, will be. When Jesus sent the disciples of Matthew chapter 10, he told them, you know, that um, they were going to see, you know, they were going to heal the sick and raise the dead and all kinds of wonderful things are going to happen. And then he said to them this, I'm sending you out like sheep amongst wolves. What happens when sheep and wolves meet? <laughs> well, the sheep get into trouble, don't they? He doesn't say, you're the wolves, you're the conquer ones. No, you're the vulnerable ones. 
and you're going to face wolves, he told them. Do you know of the 12 disciples to whom Jesus addressed these Beatitudes? One of them committed suicide. We know that, Judas Iscariot. Of the remaining 11, historians tell us on the basis mainly of traditions about them, only one died as an old man in his bed, and that was John. The others were martyred. We know that James was the first in Acts chapter 12. And there are records outside of the New Testament of others. And so he says, you're going to face persecution, but again and again, hardship and persecution rather than being the enemy of the believer and the work of God, often become the stimulus to life and a greater dependency upon God. The church historically has been strongest when it's been under persecution. Do you know the fastest growing church in the world today? Anybody know what's the fastest growing church in the world today? Anybody know? China, I heard. Iran. Is that what you said? Yeah. Iran. Do you know, 20 years ago, they estimate there were between 5,000 and 10,000 Christians in Iran 20 years ago. This is a gospel coalition statistic I'm quoting to you. And they're reliable people. 20 years ago, between five and 10,000. Today, it's estimated there are between 800,000 and 1 million Christians in, Milan, in, in Iran. I had a radio program that was translated into Farsi and broadcast into Iran every week and into Afghanistan, where they also speak Farsi, and to parts of Iraq, which also speaks, speak Farsi. And every year, during the Iranian New Year, which is about a week or 10 days long, Iranians are allowed to leave the country into two neighboring countries without visas. And one of these countries, there's a conference for Christian believers. They come in drips and drabs, and there's a venue where they meet. And I was invited just a few years ago to be the speaker at that event. And uh, it was a remarkable time, incredibly busy time, because from 8 to 9 every morning, we'd have an hour of just singing, because they couldn't sing back at home, because neighbors would hear, and they'd be in trouble. So they'd sing hymns and songs. And then from, is that 8 till 9? So maybe to 10, was it? or 9 to 10, but from 10 to 12 was the first... Bible teaching, and uh, I was the speaker with an interpreter, and uh, so we'd speak for two hours, that's what they wanted, then we'd break for lunch, and then from two to four, we'd have another two-hour speaking session, then there'd be something for the young people, and then we'd have uh, from six to eight after dinner, we'd have another two-hour session, and then there'd be an hour of just singing and worship at the end of that, just a full day. It got exhausting. My interpreter got so tired, he said, do you mind if I sit down? 
I said, sure, I'm going to stay standing, but I only did one more session, and I sat down as well because we were getting so tired because we'd be up late as well. And I heard stories from these men and women, many of whom had suffered in all kinds of ways. But one day, one of the leaders came to me and said, there's several here who'd like to be baptized and we're not going to make it public because we don't know everybody who is here, but they've come themselves. And uh, would you baptize them? I said, well, I'd love to, but wouldn't it be better if somebody who knew them baptized them? And they said, no. It's better if somebody doesn't know them because, you see, if they become baptized, that is formally changing their religion. That is illegal in Iran. These people will come out of the water, criminals, in the eyes of their government. So it's better if somebody didn't know them. It's not going to be around. So they found a place to have this baptism, freezing water. Young men, young women, and I was there to baptize them. We go into the water, baptism, come out and try and get warmed up and go back. And, and then the, afterwards, I was changing with the young men in our clothes, and one of the, one of the, one of the young men said, you know, this has been my dream. Another one said, it's been mine as well. And somebody else said, it's been mine. I was greatly moved because, as I said, they came out criminals and they're going back. And if this was ever known, they were already, if they were known to be believers, denied university access, denied certain jobs and privileges. And there were a number in that group who had been imprisoned already. And yet that's where God is doing his greatest work, in the Middle East. In Cairo, there's a church called Casa Aldebar that I know. And Casa Aldebar used to have two baptismal services. It's the largest church in the Middle East. And after the Arab Spring began about 10 years ago, I won't tell you the whole story, but they got involved and people started to come to their church and started to come to Christ. And they had four baptisms that year. Then they started having a baptism service every month. And I was there the last time now, about five years ago, and they're having a baptismal service every Sunday afternoon. Four o'clock was the baptismal service. And I saw one of the pastors of the church just recently, when I say recently, three months ago. He was over in Canada and we met. And I said, how are the baptism service is going? He said, we could have them every day if we wanted to. You know, there's a wave of atheism spreading through the Middle East, but it's an Allah atheism. People are turning away from Allah. I read in Time magazine that 10 million Iraqis have renounced Islam in the last 10 years. They're revolted by the extremism. ISIS has killed a lot of people's trust in Islam in the Middle East. They're turning from it. And they're turning initially to the secular life. But the Arabs are a spiritual people. And they're not satisfied. Many are seeking for Christ. There's stories of revival in Western Algeria in particular. Certainly a great movement in Egypt. They tell me that there have been more converts in the last 10 years in Egypt than the previous 1,000 years. And by the way, in Iraq, they say there are more, sorry, in Iran, more converts than the previous 1,500 years in total. Somebody mentioned China. 
it's hard to get the statistics. In 1949, when Nazi Tang's revolution took place, the communist revolution, they estimate about a million Christians in China. It's hard to say how many now, but they estimate between 80 and 120 million. I was in Guangzhou, city in southeastern China, and there's a man there called uh, Pastor Lam, Samuel Lam. There's a book about him called Bold as a Lamb. He started a church in his home people coming to Christ, and he was in prison for a couple of years. He came back, and it had grown to a bigger number. And he said to me, you know, every time I went to prison, the church grew. He spent 22 years in prison. First, it was two years, and he went for about five years. He came back, and we, we'd been 100. Now I came back, and we were 500. He said, they put me back in prison for another five years, hard labor. When I came back, we were 1,000. They put me back in prison, came back, and it had grown. There were 3,000. And now he said, we're too big, they can't touch us now because everybody knows about us. We're too big for them to persecute. But he said to me this, persecution is good. And he held his hands like he said, persecution is good. And I read in Christianity Today magazine recently that he's just died, or, or died in the last year or so. But I, I can't say persecution is good because I don't know. From my experience. But you ask the folks in Iran, not just in Iran, by the way, it's the Iranian diaspora, the Iranians around the world, and the Chinese around the world. The growth, some of the biggest churches in Toronto are Chinese churches. There's several Iranian churches in Toronto and other parts of the world where Iranians who've left the country are coming to Christ. And often, it's because they've paid a price and Peter writes about to a suffering Christians in First Peter. He says, In this you greatly rejoice, though for a little while you have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold which perishes may be refined by fire and may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. He says, you've been through all kinds of grief and all kinds of trials so that your faith becomes a greater worth than gold. That's a way of sorting out your priorities. And this Christian being described in these Beatitudes is where all true Christianity will lead, really. We will get into trouble. But supposing no one has any reason to persecute you or me. And go back to the list. Am I a peacemaker or am I not getting involved in other people's lives? If I'm not a peacemaker, why not? Is it because I'm not single-minded, pure in heart? If I'm not pure in heart, is it because I'm not merciful, compassionate, loving, as we said last night? If I'm not merciful, is it because I'm not hungering and thirsting for righteousness? If I'm not hungering and thirsting for righteousness, go back a step. Is it because I'm not meek, submitted to Christ as my Lord. If I'm not meekly submitted to Christ as Lord, is it because I'm not mourning my condition? Now, I'm not mourning my condition. Is it because I'm not aware of my poverty of spirit? And if that is true, we're not happy in the way Jesus is describing here. Our happiness is superficial. 
flits around here and there, but it's not a deep inner sense of contentment and well-being. And to this person, Jesus then says in verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. And in verse 14, you are the light of the world. Not you carry the salt or you bear the light. You are the salt. And salt's main purpose was resisting corruption. And light's main purpose is dispelling the darkness. But this is what a true Christian is intended to be. According to this introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. Somebody asked me an interesting question. Who was it when I came in tonight? Which of the Beatitudes is the most difficult? Did you ask me that question? Somebody did. Which of the Beatitudes is the most difficult for you? <laughs> Good question. <laughs> I was caught on the hop, so I said the smart thing. I said all of them. <laughs> but you know, there is a developing chain of events here that lead to being what is a true disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then we're on the journey and we fumble and stumble all the way along. I do anyway. And I know we do. We all do. But as we come in humility from our own poverty and mourn it and submit to Christ and let his appetites grow within us and we become a peacemaker and we get into trouble for it, in some ways people misunderstand us. We will also have a deep sense of contentment and well-being. Macarius, blessedness, as he describes it. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you for each person here tonight. We're not here because we have nothing else to do. We're here because we have an appetite to meet with you and to learn of you and to be molded by your spirit into the kind of men and women that you want us to be that make us not only right with you, experiencing peace with God and the peace of God in our souls, but also makes us fruitful <clears throat> as we share the truths that bring our hearts and souls to peace with other people. I do pray for those who are going through difficult times at the moment, whether it's circumstantial, whether it's in their families, whether it's in other ways. We pray that these difficulties will not be our enemies, but our friends as they drive us back to a deeper dependence upon you and a deeper sense of your presence. That our lives might exhibit your presence within us the glory of God and the blessing of others. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory. <clears throat>